Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. This great Christ-centered, Christ-focused, Christ-soaked letter, Hebrews. It's really a sermon. It's all about Christ. In fact, we have come to a transitional part in this book. The vast majority is expounding the superiority and sufficiency of Christ. Uh, There is certainly application woven throughout the first ten chapters. But here there is a marked transition from all that is true about the sufficient Savior Jesus and now what to do as a result or in light of the sufficiency and superiority of Jesus. That's what we have in verses 19, really all the way to verse 39. I'll take this in two portions, covering 19 through 25 today and then 25 through 39 next Sunday. But this really uh, represents a transition now as we have learned about the superiority and sufficiency of Christ and now what we must do in light of this. So hear God's holy, inspired, infallible word, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let us pray. Father, as we turn our attention to the preaching of your holy word, we are encouraged by your words, which were uttered through the prophet Isaiah. When you declare that your word that goes forth from your mouth will not return empty, but it will accomplish that which you have purposed and shall succeed in the thing for which you sent it. And we know ultimately, Lord, it is to glorify you through the edification of your church. And I pray that we would be changed, that we would be transformed again today, hearing your word. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have ever had the occasion to look at an aerial map, you know that there are multiple uh, ways you can look at that. First is the big picture. You have that big picture, especially uh, you can even look up your house. In fact, did you know if you went to terraserver.com and typed in your address, you could actually see your house. Someone else could actually see your house. (laughs) In fact, in our house, you can see the garden in our backyard by these satellite images, which is no bigger than this chancel area, which was a major selling point to me when I wanted to buy the house. Sherry looked at all these other things. I wanted to make sure there was a tomato garden already there. (laughs) But this satellite image can focus down onto that little detail, yet you could see the hole as well. And I want us to think in these terms as we look at the text before us today. In fact, if you were to look at a forested area on that same uh, aerial photograph, you would see some terrain features that dominate. In in a big picture, you'll see rivers, and everything converge into the river, or a ridgeline, or other uh, mountain ridges also. They dominate when you look at the big picture. But then as you get closer, you see individual terrain features or structures in the terrain that have their own individual personality. They all contribute to the bigger picture, but they have individual things to tell us about that particular area. Now, when we come to a text like we have today, there are many imperatives that are laced throughout. 
But don't forget the big picture, the dominating terrain feature, if you will, is the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. Then we come to the details of this and what it means, how we ought to live in light of those things in these verses before us and really the last part of chapter 10 as well. So we have to be keying in on details as we walk through the text today and also backing up to see the big picture, the supremacy and superiority of Jesus being how this contributes. So we'll go in deep, but we're going to back off at times to see. And if I were to summarize what we'll learn today in these details, simply put, draw near to God, hold fast to our confession, and stir each other up. Now, I won't do like some preachers do and they make you repeat that. You ever see that? It kind of makes you uncomfortable when they do that. Now, brothers and sisters, say this. Now, I'm not going to make you do that, but draw near, hold fast, and stir each other up is the essence of the details we're studying today. For what we learn is that the benefits we have in Christ, which have been displayed for us for ten whole chapters and are then summarized at the beginning of our text today, the benefits we have in Christ are reinforced in the local church to help us persevere in the faith. That's the big picture of these verses today. The benefits we have in Christ are reinforced in the local church to help us preserve or be preserved and persevere in the faith. Look first at the benefits we have in Christ. This is a wonderful summary. I wouldn't have you do this, but if you wanted a summary of the first 10 chapters of Hebrews, you could read verses 19 through 21 and they would give it to you. Look there. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, since we have this, therefore, we can do these things, draw near, hold fast, and stir each other up. But let's consider the benefits we have in Christ, for that's the foundation, the bedrock, the reason why we can do these other things. And you have that transition, therefore. And it means uh, that which just preceded it in chapter 10. But as you will notice, if you've been listening over these weeks and almost months, we will notice that these are the themes that the author of Hebrews keeps revisiting. Christ, our high priest, our mediator, the one who (coughs) gives us access to God the Father by his sacrifice. That's the recurring theme in the first 10 chapters of Hebrews, summarized now in verses 19 through 21. That's the benefit we have in Christ. We have bold access to God. And because of those benefits, two things are true. First, we have confident access to God through Christ. That's what verse 19 says. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And you could picture it's very different slinking in and entering a room boldly. Entering boldly because you know you're accepted. Boldly because someone's there who loves you and wants you and is anticipating you. As opposed to slinking in, sneaking around, hoping else no one helping no one sees you. We can confidently enter through the holy places, the presence of God. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. That's a benefit we have in Christ that I would hope none of us ever, ever grow cold in hearing. You know, I had great confidence as a child uh, that I was important to my parents, and it really didn't matter who they were speaking to. It was important that I was there. Now, I had to be courteous and wait my turn to talk with my parents, but they would never put me away uh, to accept someone else. I could, it didn't matter how important the person was they were talking to, I could come and they would receive me. And I hope that's true for you. You know, I think if I were ever to have the audience of someone like the President of the United States, I'd be honored to talk with that individual. I'd certainly be a little primer and properer than I usually am. <laughs> However, if my children came to me while I was talking to the President of the United States, they would have to be courteous and wait, but I would hope 
that they would have access to me, confident access, and they would not be worried that I was talking to the president. They would know that I love them and I want them to come to me. I, they would have confident access to me because they know how important they are to me. Confident access is what you have to God the Father, not slinking into his presence. In fact, I would suggest to you that slinking into his presence is an insult to some degree to the bold access we can have in Christ. And here's the reason why. It's not because you on your own merit can come into God's presence and be confident. Far be it from that. Even in Christ, you know the sinfulness of your own heart, and probably you've struggled, maybe even your prayer life, to talk to God because you know some sin that you're holding on to. You know the Father knows, and so you're, you're, you're not confident in your entrance into the holy place, as it were, into his presence. Well, I would suggest to you that our thinking is all wrong here. We have to remember that Jesus is the reason why we have access to the Father. Why is this important? Well, my confidence is not because I've become a believer and now I'm holy. No, my confidence is that God the Father will never, ever turn back his son. It's not about me. So when I go into the presence of God, for God to cast me off would, to be, would be to cast off Christ because he has brought me in union with Christ and God will never do that. You will always have confident access knowing that he sees his son as you come into his presence. And God the Father loves his son so much that he receives us as we're united to him. That is Christ, and we have confident access to him. This is a, is there a better benefit than the access we have to God? And it's not just that we're saved, it's that we have ongoing communion with God because he loves Jesus so much. Now, it's not because Tony's become holy now that I'm saved. It's because I'm still united to Christ, and he receives me into his presence. And that compels me to live a different life when I recognize what's been given to me in Christ. That benefit Confident access to God will reap great, great results in the life to come. Also, though, we see in the text in verse 21 that we have Christ's ongoing, continual intercession. It's not just that we have confident access now to God. We have Christ's ongoing priestly ministry. The work of sacrifice is done, but he continues to intercede before the Father on our behalf. Verse 21, since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now, what did a priest do? They presided over the tabernacle or the temple. They interceded for the people. They represented the people. They brought sacrifices. They kept the temple and the tabernacle. In fact, their tents, their homes, were pitched around the tabernacle or the temple. And uh, they worked in shifts. And the priests worked on the temple. Now, how this has changed in Christ is that the people of God are now the temple of God. Individually, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 Peter, we're spiritual buildings being built up. The church is a building, as it were, as a metaphor, the house of God. That's what it means when it says we have a great priest over the house of God. Literally, it means the people of God. We have a priest who presides over us. There's no longer a physical temple, so the people of God are the temple of God, so to speak. And Jesus continually intercedes, as a priest would, for the people. Having given himself as the once-for-all sacrifice, he now continues to intercede for us before the Father. So we have the continual ministry of Jesus Christ. We have access, confident access to the Father. That's a summary of the book of Hebrews, the first 10 chapters. Because of that, brothers and sisters, we now can follow the imperatives that are then given to us in the rest of the text. The benefits we have in Christ are then reinforced in the local church to help us persevere in the faith. Look at first... We are called to draw near. Second, 
hold fast. Third, stir one another up. These are all commands, imperatives, in light of the benefits we have in Christ. So first, draw near to God. Look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let's be clear. We're talking about drawing near to God. It doesn't say that literally, but we know this is the case because of its immediate context. But also, earlier in Hebrews, the author uses the exact same phrase. Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The throne of grace is the place of God's presence and his mercy in Christ. So we draw near to God. Later in Hebrews 7, consequently, he is able to save you to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So again, this phrase, draw near, means drawing near to God, our Father. Also later in Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the phrase draw near always in Hebrews means draw near to God. Draw near is an imperative, it's a command. Make no mistake, in Christ we now can draw near to our Father. And the best way I can describe it is just a child crawling up into the lap of their father or their mother. It's this picture of drawing near, confidently knowing we have this interceder, and then crawling up into his lap. He's our father. We could draw near to him. It's very personal. It's not out there. It's not, yes, God is wholly other, and we should recognize him as that in our worship, in our reverence, in our stature before him as a, a body. But we should also recognize that we can crawl up into his lap because he's our father and we're his children, and he never turns us away. We're to draw near to him. Just as the psalmist says, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Draw near to him, we're commanded, in light of what Christ has done for us. How do we draw near? What is our stature? How do we approach God as we crawl up into his lap, as it were? Well, verse 22 tells us, first, with a true heart. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Full assurance of faith, being fully believing that we have that access. But brothers and sisters, do so with a true heart. What I mean by this and what the text means by this, more importantly, is with honesty, with authenticity, with genuineness, transparently. Why is this important? None of us are as transparent with each other as we think we are. I want you honestly to think for a moment, think if there's any other human being that knows the depths of your heart. And then really think in terms of percentages, honestly. How much of, some, of your heart does someone else on earth really know? You may have two or three people that know different things about you and put them together. Maybe they know 50% of what your real heart says. We play games with each other. We're nervous. None of us likes to be judged, like to be judged. So there's things we just don't say because we don't want someone's jaw to drop. If you only knew what I did before... Or if that person knew what I did, they'd never like me. And we think that way, and it's unfortunate that we think that way. Please don't play those games with God. Come to him with a true heart. His jaw does not drop when you, his child, who he loves and gave his son for, comes to him with confession. In fact, he knows it already, so confess it. Confession is not about getting initial salvation. That's granted to us. The fruit of salvation is confession. Is confessing before God that it's all true, God. I am bankrupt morally. I'm bankrupt from my past. I still do things I'm ashamed of, and I'll do other things in the future. But God, I come to you with a true heart. Authentically. It's so different from the way we live and move, especially socially. 
Come with a true heart, transparently before God. But secondly, come with a cleansed conscience. Really, that's realizing with our hearts, in verse 22, the second part, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. This is really a present action that has, has happened and been applied and goes on into the future. Our hearts have been sprinkled clean from our evil conscience. The life that was lived before or the sins that haunt us have been cleansed. We don't live in guilt anymore because Christ has taken that away. And that makes all the difference in opening our lives and freeing our lives to serve Him. This language, sprinkled and washed, that we see in the last part of verse 22, would be very, very uh, common for the Jewish person who understood ceremonial washings. They would sprinkle things and wash things for ceremonial purposes. And sprinkling, especially if you applied sprinkling to the head of a person, was symbolic of their whole self being washed, uh, the head of the person. And so our hearts, our evil hearts before Christ, are sprinkled, our stony hearts, our hardened hearts, are sprinkled with the blood of Christ, as it were. And so we now have full assurance of faith. We come to him with a true heart and our conscience is cleansed. We know what we've done because we have a true heart before the Lord, but we also recognize Christ's blood to be sufficient for taking it away and taking away the guilt and shame that goes with it. not saying it happens overnight, brothers and sisters. In fact, you have to hear the message over and over again of grace. But it's true that our conscience has been washed by the blood of Christ because Christ's blood is that powerful. You might remember back to chapter 9 when the author wrote this. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's powerful. Because now that you have a cleansed conscience, the works you do are no longer futile or useless or fruitless. They're now turned from dead works, because our conscience is clear, our shame is gone, into good works that bring glory to God. Where before, I know we don't think this way before, We were doing it for ourselves in some way. Even if we were doing something for someone else, it was ultimately so they appreciated us. Where we turn from dead works to works that are spiritual now because our conscience has been washed and clean. It's a simple thing. A guilty demeanor hinders our actions. Someone who is heaped up over with guilt cannot serve God fully. I think of the brothers of Joseph often, and I can't wait to see that story in heaven, that the Lord would show us on some kind of heavenly DVD. But you have the brothers, and do you ever get the picture uh, that part of the reason why Joseph had trouble recognizing them is that the guilt had weighed on them for all those years, and they were physically beaten down looking when they came to him and didn't recognize him as being this powerful Egyptian Lord. And there's a sense in which physically even guilt can work on us to where we're irrecognizable 20, 30 years later because it's, it's beat us down and hunched us over. The effect of guilt on our lives can be illustrated with a a neat little story. A little boy visiting his grandparents and given his first slingshot. Now, any men here, and maybe some of you girls who have gotten a slingshot, I won't do a show of hands, but usually it doesn't take more than a week for them to break something they shouldn't break with that. You can't hit anything with it. It doesn't aim well, but it always breaks stuff. (laughs) And so this little boy has a slingshot. He practiced in the woods, but he could never hit his target. As he came back to Grandma's backyard, he spied her pet duck. On an impulse, he took aim and let it fly, not thinking it would ever hit. Well, the stone hit, and the duck fell dead. The boy panicked. Desperately, he hid the dead duck in the wood, in the wood pile, only to look up and see his sister watching. Sally had seen it all, but she said nothing. 
After lunch that day, Grandma said, Sally, let's wash the dishes. But Sally said, Johnny told me that he wanted to help in the kitchen today. Didn't you, Johnny? <laughs> and she whispered to him, remember the duck. <laughs> so Johnny did the dishes. Later, Grandpa asked the children if they wanted to go fishing. Grandma said, I'm sorry, but I need Sally to help me make supper. Sally smiled and said, that's all taken care of. Johnny wants to do it. Again, she whispered, remember the duck. Johnny stayed while Sally was fishing. After several days of Johnny doing both his chores and Sally's, finally he couldn't stand it. He confessed to Grandma that he had killed the duck. And she said, I know, Johnny. I saw. And she gave him a hug. I was standing at the window and I saw the whole thing. Because I love you. I forgave you. I wonder how long you would have let Sally make a slave of you. And some of you, I wonder how long you'll let some person make a slave of you for something you did way back when that you've long asked forgiveness for, long been granted forgiveness by the blood of Christ, and you're still a slave today because someone keeps holding something over your head. How long will you let yourself be a slave to Satan on your conscience and do injustice to the blood of Christ who has freed you from a guilty conscience? He's freed our conscience, but he's also washed our bodies. Look at the third part of verse 22. And our bodies washed with pure water. Now, he's not just talking about baptism here, although outward baptism is certainly a sign of this kind of purification. Really, what we have in this reference to a purified body is talking about the purification of life that is accomplished by the regenerating and sanctifying work of the Spirit. An inward action happens when the Lord saves us, gives us life, and it manifests itself in an outward way, in the things we do, physically, the things we carry out. So in a general sense, our bodies are being washed with pure water means the process of sanctification of every believer that you're going through. As God, after God justifies you to make you more and more holy, more and more into his image, as painful as that is, that process is what is referred to here. And it all has to do with drawing near to God with a pure heart, cleansed conscience, and a purified body. Then secondly, the other imperative, verse 23, hold fast to the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now the confession of our hope, or our hope, simply refers to Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who grants us access to God. He's our hope for everything. That's the ultimate problem man has, is no access to God. We have access to God in Christ. He's our hope. We hope in him now, and we hope in him in the, to the future. Uh, really simply, if you want to divide mankind, it's just into two groups. For all the divisions we try to put on, uh, socioeconomics, race, national background, family lineage, vocation, you name all the artificial ways we separate humanity, there's really only one true division. Those who have access to God through Christ and those who do not. We have access to Christ, and that is our hope. And our hope is based on the faithfulness of the living God. We are, we are to hold fast. Now this phrase, hold fast, is important. Uh, this is not uh, loosely hanging on to. I would compare it this way. Uh, there's two different kinds of, of descriptions of holding something. One would be what you do when you go water skiing. Now, maybe when you first start, you grip on so tight, and you learn after the first or second time that you can't do that, because if you keep holding on when the boat takes off and your feet go out from under you, you will plow on your head for a long way. <laughs> and your head can ski. It's just it's not comfortable. 
So you hold it a little looser. If you water ski, you know what I'm saying. You hold it in a way that allows you to bail if you have to, but there's enough tightness to hold on. It's really at your whim how you hold it. Holding fast is more like you get thrown off of an ocean liner in the middle of the sea. The waters are rough and rocky, and the wind is sweeping. Someone throws a preserver to you. You hang on to it for dear life. And it doesn't matter how many waves. It doesn't matter how discomfort you have. You may go underwater for a little, but you still hold fast because you know it's going to carry you up. And you do not let go under any circumstances. We are to hold fast to the confession of our hope. Please note what I'm not saying. I'm not saying salvation is dependent on holding on to Jesus. We'd all be in trouble if that were the case. We're holding on to what? The confession of our hope. That is the reality of what is true. What God is. We hang on to that which the scripture declares about our position in Christ. Because if you drift away from that, although it may be true that you're God's, you will... You'll be separated from the herd, as it were, and you'll have the sense of isolation and aloneness and vulnerability, and eventually depression sets in. Uh, All sorts of other things set into us, and we struggle and we then waver. And the text says, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Without wavering. To waver is to become shaky regarding a certain commitment, regarding a confession. You know, there's some people who never commit to anything. That's noncommittal. That's not the same thing as waver. Waver has to do with one who had stability but is losing it. A building that was built 100 years ago, at the time it was a rock. It couldn't be moved. But over time, pressure, erosion, various forces work to make it start to waver where it's not safe. That happens in the Christian life, namely when we're separated from the confession of our hope, which is the exposition of who Jesus is, the reminder of who Christ is, the means of God's grace. We can waver when we are detached from this. If you've ever spent any time away in another country or a time where you've not had an opportunity to fellowship with other believers and hear the word, there is a sense, you may not have wavered as such, but there's a sense of aloneness that can set in. There's a sense of disconnect that can cause us or shake us, cause us to be unstable. So we are to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And the reason why we can do this without wavering is because it's based on God's faithfulness. The last part of verse 23, for he who promised is faithful. Now, we've been looking at details. Let's back up a minute. Remember, it's the superiority and it's the supremacy of Christ. That's the reason why we can do these things. Without wavering, based on God's faithfulness. We draw near to God, we hold fast to the confession of our hope. And finally, we are to stir up one another. Verse 24 and verse 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Consider how. I think this is important. It says consider how to stir up one another. Considering how refers to the different ways it takes to encourage different people, I believe. I think you have to think about how to stir one another up. I'm not stirred up necessarily to the same way that others are. And so it's, it's a personal effort on the part of us in the body of believers, and even more particularly for the shepherds of the church, to see how to stir the congregation up to love and good works. And stirring up means what? If we need stirring up, what does that imply about us? We tend to be lax. We tend or be, we're prone to inactivity spiritually. So we need to be stirred up like a pot of good sauce. You never just let it sit there. You have to stir it from time to time. 
Because it, otherwise, it'll settle and it'll burn on the bottom. You've got to stir it on a regular basis. In light of all these things, we are to stir one another up, brothers and sisters. Oh, I don't know. Is it eight years ago now? Pastor Nathan, I don't remember. Nine years ago, maybe. Which is probably the most recent irresponsible thing we've done together <laughs> that I would tell you about. <laughs> we were at seminary together, and we worked one summer together on the grounds crew. And our boss told us to go and remove a hornet's nest that had been built behind one of the houses. Now, there are ways to remove hornet's nests that are smart, that grounds crew keepers know how to take care of. That's not the way we decided we were going to get rid of this hornet's nest. It just was too inviting. We got there, we saw it, we knew it had been there and in a building over the summer. This is towards the end of the summer, hot day. And in hot weather, as you know, especially with cold-blooded creatures, they don't move very much. They just kind of look lazy. And they're crawling around the outside. But we knew the thing was loaded, and it was bigger than a basketball, probably in between a basketball and a beach ball size. I mean, the, the branch kind of hung a little from the weight of this thing. And so I had the idea, or maybe Pastor Nathan had the idea, I don't remember. Uh, but we pulled up underneath it, and I got in the back of the little Cushman that we drove around, which is a four-wheel drive little kind of tractor thing that we could put stuff in the back and just drive around the grounds with. And I told Nathan to stay, to stay parked and get ready. I'm going to get in the back, and there was a good-sized rock, a little bigger than a hymnal size, and I was going to throw it at the hornet's nest, knock it down on the ground, and then, you know, we take off in all safety, of course. Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> so I get up on it, and it needs stirring, right? There's no hornets on. They're not mad or anything. Now there's only a few crawling on the outside of it. So I got the rock, and the adrenaline maybe got the best of me. I threw it, hit it, hit the branch above it, shook it, and it didn't move. But they just started pouring, pouring out of this thing. And Pastor Nathan, in his skilled drivership, <laughs> stalls it out as he's trying to go out. <laughs> and so he's starting to fire it up. I jump off the back, and I start running up the side of the ditch, and they're dive-bombing us at this point. He gets it fired up, and I jump on the back, and we had a good laugh all the way up the hill. <laughs> you know, the church is sometimes like that. There's a lot of potential wrapped up in it, but it needs to be stirred up. Something needs to happen to get us really out of our comfort zone. You know, it would be fine, I think, for some of us just to sit in comfort every Sunday, see people that are like us and have the same convictions as us and then go back to our home and live a life that's totally secluded and has no connection to the world whatsoever. And that's not the purpose of the church. Yes, I fully agree that the church has to be built up in its midst. It has to be built up as a community to have the impact we'd like to see it have that Christ wants it to have as salt and light. But if our concept is to be constantly comfortable, then may God stir us up. And let's start this way, not just by my speaking, stir one another up to love into good works. What's love and good works? Love is something that no one can do except for a Christian. What do you mean? I'm sure the unbelieving mother loves her child. Yes, but not the same way someone who's regenerated loves. Someone who has Christ's life in them, they love in a way that is actually selfless, not fully because our sin is wrapped up, don't get me wrong, but there's a sense in which we begin to do things for other people besides ourselves. That's the love that God is talking about that can be displayed in the body of Christ. We do things now for others. That is, we should have organized ways that we as families and churches do things for others, whether it's giving to a mercy ministry, involving yourself, going over to a member's house to help them with something, making meals for someone, a word of encouragement, something that is beyond yourself that you'll get no benefit from personally, 
at least not initially. The benefit comes back in blessing. Go on a mission trip. Do what it is that you can do that God's given you the ability to do. Do it for someone else. That's Christ in you. That's Christ working through you. That's being stirred up to love. Selflessness. But also, not just to love, but to do good works. And please see the order. All the benefits we have are in Christ. We have access to God through Christ. Because of that, we do good works. It's not that we do good works to have access to God. It's we do good works because we are in God's presence. Big difference. That's the difference between grace-centeredness and work-centeredness. Work-centeredness, many Christians still believe this way. God saved me by his grace, now I work it all out. Meaning I have to pay him back, or I have to do this to make him love me more. That is not grace. That's still a work-centered gospel, which is no gospel at all. Grace is all of God, and now our life is lived in reaction to what God has done for us in Christ. And I'll tell you what, there's no question, I know it in my own life, and I've seen it in yours, at least in limited basis as I've interacted with you, Grace motivation is always longer lasting and truly victorious than any amount of guilt-centered preaching I could give you. Speaking of guilt-centered, let's look at verse 25 for a moment, which is one of the classic texts used by preachers to beat people on the head for skipping church on Sunday. Am I wrong? (laughs) Don't tell me you weren't a little nervous reading this verse when I started reading it. And that's the beauty of this verse is I don't have to say a whole lot. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. And please notice what the habit of some means. And let me be clear. I am not legalistically standing here and telling you that if you miss church, that God somehow loves you less or you've committed the unpardonable sin. I don't mean that at all. But there is a habit that some people make, and it's regarding their view of the day that the Lord God has set apart to be for the purpose of gathering. And they've made a habit of saying in their spirit that I know that's what it says, or maybe I'm not sure what it says. I know what the leadership says that God's placed over me, but I don't care because I need to do something else. And I often think to myself, it's not so much if people decide to skip the organized meetings that the elders call for. And by the way, there's only three. There's only three meetings the elders have said are valuable enough that all the family should be part of. That's the Lord's Day activity, Sunday morning and Sunday night. And we really would like everyone to be involved with a small group. If we're just to break it down to three things, if that's all you could do, those are the things we'd ask every family to consider doing. Not so we can puff numbers or any other reason, but because we think this is part of what the text is talking about. To be together enough to encourage one another to do love and good works, you've got to have time together. And God set apart one day out of seven to be holy unto him. So that's the day the church is always recognized as a meeting day to get together. And then also the small group context helps with the encouraging part. It's difficult sometimes in this setting for us to talk one another about encouraging things. Whereas you've heard this message, you go to your small group now and you talk about the message that was preached. And that's how you encourage one another. And you just get together about other issues in your life. You're able to meet each other. And so we're only saying, really, that there's three things. There are other many great worthy ministries that we have that if you can, you should be part of. But if I were just to entreat you to not neglect the meeting together of one another, those would be the three things I'd be speaking about. And there will be cases, brothers and sisters, and hear me clearly, where there's probably a good reason not to be at one of those meetings. And all I ask you, by the Spirit's conviction, is to ask yourself when you're deciding, and that's what it is, when you're deciding not to go to one of those things, is the reason... God-honoring and glorifying, and am I building up Christ's church and doing it? And there are some times when that is the case. I, there, I won't delineate them all, but there are some cases where that can be the case. For the most part, brothers and sisters, if we are honest with each other, it is usually a matter of our own convenience. I'm too tired. 
or fill in the blank. And it's easy for me to be judgmental. I've got to be here. <laughs> I mean, if I don't show up, it's not, I mean, I haven't missed a Sunday service in 10 years because I've got to be here. <laughs> you could kind of skip one Sunday. People will notice, but they skip one themselves, so no one's going to really say that much. <laughs> so I hope what I'm saying to you is taken in pastoral love that I think the text means to say to a first century church first that would never think of giving up communion with the other saints when people were dying for claiming Christ. I often wonder what our first century counterparts would think as they're worshiping in the catacombs. When they looked around and didn't see someone, they didn't know if the person was dead. That's why they weren't there. Hmm. And if they weren't there and they made a habit of not being there, I promise you that that first century church would have gone to them and said, don't miss this. You'll start wavering. You need the encouragement that can be had in the midst of the body. And let us not fool ourselves in this kind of christian ease soaked culture that we're okay just because we miss time with the body. We need it. Neglect, uh, do not neglect to meet with each other, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near, all the more as it becomes apparent that the presence of Christ is needed in a major, major way. Not in a legalistic sense, but in a sense that recognizes God has granted great grace in giving a community of faith where we can mutually encourage one another. Brothers and sisters, what we have in this text very simply is that the benefits we have in Christ are reinforced in the local church to help us persevere in the faith. Draw near to God. Hold fast to your confession, your hope, which is Christ, and stir, stir up one another to love and good works. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this day that you have made. I thank you for this opportunity we have to gather and, and worship you. Lord, I pray that no one would be offended by things that I say. By your word, Father, that's another matter, but not by things that I say. And I pray that we would take to heart the spirit of this text that declares to us we have a great opportunity, great opportunity to draw near to you, to hold fast to our confession. And in the context of meeting together to build one another up, encouraging one another, that we would be built up in the faith that we might be used as transformational agents in the world. Pray that you'd make this a transforming church, a group of people who recognize how badly the world needs Christ, is willing to live for him and be his conduit to a world that so desperately needs it. Pray that we'd make choices that are glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning...